Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So whenever you hear about Syria in the news, you usually get this diagram that shows all of the different actors in Syria, or at least some of them. And one of those is always moderate rebels. And that term seems a little simplistic for what's actually going on. And a lot of times you have people like, for instance, Ted Cruz saying, who are these moderate rebels? Do they actually exist or are they just jihadis who are looking for our money uh, or that sort of thing? Fortunately, we have someone uh, on the podcast today who uh, who deals with this sort of thing for a living. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Daniel Serber. He's the uh, director of the Conflict Management Department at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And he's just back from a trip to Jordan uh, to deal with this very issue. Uh, Professor, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure should it be here, Joe. So perhaps you could start by just explaining a little bit about you've now been to to uh, to Amman in, in Jordan uh, and uh, encountered some of the the opposition in the south of Syria there's also a, a separate opposition uh, political opposition group in or consortium in the north uh, in Gaziantep and you, you were there earlier perhaps you could say a little bit about uh, what you've been doing there what you found on your trip what's your reaction to the state of the opposition in Syria today I've been talking to people. And uh, what I've been learning is that there is a substantial moderate opposition, both in Gaziantep, where the Syrian interim government resides, along with a lot of non-governmental organizations who are providing assistance inside Syria. The Syrian interim government is a non-recognized government, which... uh, does many things. Uh, It uh, tries to standardize the methods by which so-called local administrative councils are chosen inside Syria and liberated areas. It actually gives school end-of-year exams inside the liberated areas. The education minister has actually moved into uh, Syria in a liberated zone. Uh, And then you have a whole complex of non-governmental organizations, Syrian non-governmental organizations that are trying to promote uh, Syrian civil society, trying to help Syrian civil society think through the issues uh, involved in supporting people inside Syria, but also in thinking about the longer-term democratic future of Syria. Uh, In Amman, you find something uh, less uh, substantial in the sense that uh, you've got uh, some NGOs who are affiliated in one way or another with the battalions, the insurgent battalions that call themselves the Southern Front. This was a Southern Front was a kind of consortium of 56 rebel groups in the South. The South is relatively calm getting a lot of humanitarian assistance that's distributed in large part by, uh, by the, uh, the organizations affiliated with the uh, moderate Syrian opposition. Uh, and the military situation there is relatively stable. Ever since the Russian air attacks in the north, the situation there has become much less stable. 
so uh, one question that one always has to ask about about the opposition is how united is it? I I, I was uh, I was reading that the, the uh, the, the head of Jabhat al-Nusra of, of all groups, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, said that there's no such thing as the, the free Syrian army in, in a physical sense because it's all just disconnected units and some are local militias and some are, are disaffected army units who, who, who rebelled and that it's, it's more a state of mind that people have. It's an, it's an idea more than an actual thing. And in Dara, you've got, what, what did you say? Something like 56 different rebel groups you'd mentioned on your blog, uh, that, that, or, or, or different units that have all been sort of put together into this Southern front. How, how unified is this? If, if we're talking about a political transition, uh, going forward, are, are we, are we dealing with these groups just turn on each other or do they all have a, a more united idea of what they want Syria to look like in the future? I think they have a more united idea and you've got to remember that, uh, Weapons aren't the only thing that's powerful. Ideas are powerful as well. And the, the basic idea of the so-called moderate Syrian opposition is a democratic, uh, civilian, c- civil Syria, a Syria in which people are defined by their citizenship, not by their ethnicity or their religion, a Syria in which religion, mosque, and state are uh, separated, a, a Syria in which people are treated equally, whatever, um, whatever their faith, uh, and that's a very powerful idea. It's the idea that motivated uh, the American Revolution, and, and it's the idea that's uh, motivating uh, a big piece of the Syrian insurgency. Now, Al Jalani uh, emphasizes how fractious they are because he doesn't like them. He's the leader of an Islamist group. Uh, and they are fractious to some degree, but they're not fighting with each other in the South. Quite to the contrary, they're fighting against Jelani's Jabhat al-Nusra. They're fighting against uh, the Islamic State in the South. And neither Jabhat al-Nusra or the Islamic State have made much headway in the South against the relative moderates. The moderates there claim 35,000 fighters. I heard other people tell me it's more like 25 to 30,000 fighters. That's a lot of fighters. Uh, and, you know, if you ask me, what are these fighters like? I mean, it's a citizen army, basically. It's, it's a, it, these fighters are people who live in the South and who have taken up weapons to protect themselves from an oppressive regime. They control, you know, maybe 65% of three uh, provinces in the South. Uh, The regime is unable to make headway against them. Uh, The Russian air attacks have been relatively uh, few down there, and that has helped to... uh, to make the situation there a bit calmer than in the north. In the north, there's real turmoil because of the uh, Russian air attacks and because the Islamist forces are much stronger in the north than they are in the south. Uh, so now about these these Islamist forces, you've got this sort of umbrella group, Arar Asham, and they have they may not have the kind of political legitimacy that uh, that the international community can 
to the extent that it is unified can bestow, but they're powerful all the same, and they're a major actor, uh, quite apart from Daesh slash Islamic State. Uh, how do you, if you're looking to to for the future of Syria, how do you deal with with groups like this that have that may not have political legitimacy, but have legitimacy in terms of, of military capability and will be difficult. I mean, we saw after the removal of, of uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi in Libya, a lot of these groups, even though they weren't given political legitimacy, continued to just control territory and, and help Libya spiral out of control. How do you deal with them going forward? Well, you have to make a basic decision. Are these people so far beyond the pale, so committed to terrorist activity, to uh, a brutal dictatorial Islamic state that they have to be kept out of the tent? Or uh, are you going to be better off uh, if they're inside the tent uh, peeing in the other direction? And, uh, you know, the decision isn't quite made on this subject yet. Uh, the Russians have expressed doubts about including Sham in the uh, negotiations. They were at the Riyadh meeting of the Syrian opposition, which, pres- uh, which approved a strong pro-democracy statement. At first they signed on, then they said they had to consult their people. It's not clear to me right now whether they're in or out, to tell you the truth. The Turks uh, very much want them in. Uh, The Saudis will want them in, I think. Uh, But the Russians and Iranians will want them out, saying that these are jihadi Salafists and um, their ideology should be be, uh, uh, separated from the uh, relatively modern Syrian opposition. We might listen a little bit to what the Syrian opposition wants. The Syrian opposition is likely to want them in because they are good fighters and because there has been military cooperation in some areas between these uh, Islamist groups and the Syrian opposition. What everybody has agreed on is that the Islamic State and uh, Jabhat al-Nusra are out of the tent. Uh, but Ahra al-Sham, Jesh al-Islam uh, are uh, still candidates to be inside the tent of the negotiations. So let's talk a little bit about what came out of these Riyadh talks. You had the, this collection of different uh, rebel groups uh, represented at this. Not all of them. There were some Kurdish groups that weren't allowed to attend, I think because Turkey didn't want them, if I remember correctly. Um and so it's not as if this represents all of the different actors in, in Syria and certainly not the regime. But uh, the Riyadh talks, the outcome that you, you'd mentioned, it demands the ouster of Bashar al-Assad on a six-week timetable. Now, this sort of brings up the elephant in the room, which is the kind of sectarian nature of this conflict. If you if you belong to certain Syrian minority groups, you've been disproportionately favored in this government and you're quite naturally, particularly given the, 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 the extreme violence that's taken place in this conflict, you, you're probably a little concerned about what, a, a, little, a little concerned, you're probably terrified about what is going to come next if the regime collapses. How can we get it to, to the point where supporters of this regime who fear, and not necessarily without reason, 
that their livelihoods and their even their lives themselves and their communities will come under attack if they if they lose control of this government. How do you get them to come on board with a with a, a, a political transition like this? Because I mean, like Alawites, for example, they only account for about ten to twelve, thirteen percent of the population, but they've been basically running the government or most of it. And how do we get to the point where they can accept? that they will be a minority and that they won't have control of the, of the, the security services and the commanding heights of the economy and the government like they have for the last 40 years. This is a subject for the negotiations. It's a very serious subject. Uh, Alawites have to be protected. Christians have to be protected. Uh, Shia have to be protect, protected. Uh, there are a lot of different groups in Syria, and the minorities, most of them have sided with the regime. Some have, like the Druze, have tried to stay on the fence. But uh, it's quite clear that there can be no political settlement in which there isn't a serious effort to protect the minorities in Syria from uh, from groups that are uh, intolerant, is, uh, would be a mild word. They are homicidal towards uh, people who don't believe what they believe. Uh, I might comment quickly on the Kurds. Yes, Turkey would be against the Kurdish forces, which are affiliated with rebel Kurdish forces inside Turkey. Uh, Turkey's against their participation in the Syrian opposition. But I think it's fair to say that a good part of the Syrian opposition is against their participation as well because they have collaborated with the regime and even fought with the regime against uh, opposition forces at times. So the Kurdish uh, PYD, as it's called, is simply not accepted by, uh, by the Syrian opposition as part of the opposition. They actually think it should come to the table as part of the regime delegation. I think it's more likely that it may have to come to the table separately. So, so this this kind of brings up. I mean, this is an idea that I've I've been exploring on on my blog a little bit, and, and we recently it, it hasn't really gotten a lot of popular currency yet, uh, uh, except from John Bolton in the New York Times op-ed page. But I want to uh, briefly talk about about the idea of what happens if Syria and Iraq get partitioned, because. Iraq, at least, is is highly divided territorially into different groups. You've got a Kurdish region, you've got a predominantly Shiite region, you have a predominantly Sunni region, and Syria didn't used to be, but through the course of this conflict, there have been there's been this interesting transformation. It used to be that that it was very polyglot, and and something like seventy six percent of Syria's economy went through Damascus. It was very sort of state and centralized based, but now only seventeen percent does. And you have this. All sides have been practicing deliberate population displacement. Uh, the Kurds are doing it. The regime is doing it. The regime is now talking about uh, useful Syria, which is, in effect, the areas that they control and that are loyal to them, mostly along the coast. Uh, it's starting to look like like balkanization, like the parties are partitioning themselves. 
Is that a poss- if this if this war continues and we're not able to come to a political settlement, is that a possible outcome or or, or is that anathema? I noticed that the Vienna communique and uh, and the Security Council resolution that was just passed both unequivocally say t- Syria's territorial integrity should be respected. But if this goes on the way it's been going on, are we sure that balkanization isn't isn't uh, I mean, it worked in the Balkans? It's certainly a possible outcome. Uh, I don't agree that it worked in the Balkans. I think uh, it, uh, it it actually is one of the uh, bad outcomes in the Balkans. But uh, we, we actually never moved national borders in the Balkans unless you count the independence of Kosovo. And even there, we didn't redraw the line uh, along the line of ethnic separation. We refused to do that. So... I wouldn't take the Balkans as a precedent for ethnic uh, division of uh, of, uh, of Syria. More importantly, it's not a solution. It may be an outcome, but it's not a solution. And the reason it's not a solution is that there's no way of making everybody happy in such a situation. Let me illustrate, starting with Iraq. Yes, Iraq has a largely Shia south, a largely Sunni west, and a largely Kurdish north. But uh, the, that doesn't mean that formal partition is going to be an easy thing to do. They don't agree on the lines of separation. The, uh, the borders of Kurdistan are not agreed by the Sunni and Shia. And, and so when you talk about uh, drawing borders uh, and people don't agree, the way they decide the borders is by war. And that war could go on for decades. Uh, so, the, the, the Sunni and Shia don't accept that Kirkuk, an important oil-producing town in Iraq, should go to an independent Kurdistan. And the Sunnis don't agree that Baghdad should go to to an independent Shia stand, if I may call it, if I may call it that, and and the Shia don't agree that Kirkuk should go with the Kurds. So you have a situation in which uh, uh, an attempted partition, a formal partition, is an almost certain formula for even more war than we've seen so far. Now in Syria, the situation is much much worse because the populations are much less separated. In fact, the, the so-called Alawite West, uh, Latakia, Tartus, none of the towns in that Alawite West were majority Alawite before the war. There were large numbers of Sunnis living there, and there still are large numbers of Sunnis. In fact, there are more Sunnis living there because regime areas have been safer and insurgent areas, so people have tended to move to regime areas, people, even people who are anti-regime. So, you know, you don't, you don't have any, um, the, the lines are even less clear in Syria, and you can tell that right away if you look at a map of who controls what in Syria. There's no clear confrontation lines. There are enclaves within enclaves within enclaves. It's an amazingly complicated situation, and the reason is that the populations are so thoroughly mixed. 
Now, of course, there may be some greater separation as a result of the war, but they don't agree on lines. And, you know, Assad can talk about useful Syria, but nobody in the opposition is letting him walk off with with Damascus or with the coastline. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a totally impractical outcome. Uh, the, the one area where, you know, it's going to be really hard to avoid is in the north where the Kurds have carved out uh, some areas that they regard as Kurdish cantons. But interestingly, the Kurds have not are not looking for independence in that area. They're looking for more authority to govern themselves. And that seems to me to point to the right solution, which is that these governments, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, uh, Syria under Bashar al-Assad, were overly centralized. And part of the solution here is a devolution of authority to the provincial and municipal levels. And uh, that's a very powerful policy instrument that doesn't raise the kinds of issues that formal partition raises. So, so okay, so I've I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, one about how we, the the erstwhile international community, can can support uh, the the opposition, and then uh, what about the uh, the Vienna talks that, that led to this this statement and the Security Council Resolution 2254 that just, I believe that's its number, that just passed. Um, I think uh, if I, if based on, on uh, our previous discussions in your blog post, I think that you felt that there were a couple of key parts that were left out of, of the Vienna the conversation and the uh, and the, uh, the UN Security Council talks, and those were specifically about the transition because if Russia and Iran were were in the room for one of them and just Russia for the other, the transition was going to have to be vague because there's just no agreement yet on what it's going to look like. Uh, how do you feel about? I mean, reading two two five four, what do you uh, what do you feel about it? I think it's even vaguer in some ways than uh, than the uh, Vienna statement. I thought the Vienna statement was pretty clear and pretty good. Uh, it's a statement that outlines a transition consistent with the June 2012 UN communique, which said that there had to be a transitional governing authority uh, with full executive authority, a transitional government with full executive authority. And uh, what that means is that all of the president's authority would have to be delegated to that uh, governing body. Now, I don't believe that that will ever happen with Bashar al-Assad still in place. So the, the really crunch issue at this point between the Americans and the Russians um, is, is the status of Bashar al-Assad when, when he leaves during the transition, if he leaves during the transition. Russians always say that they're not attached to him personally, but then they behave as if they are. I tend to believe people's behavior more than their statements, especially when the statements are coming from Moscow. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's take them at face value. They still haven't made clear uh, how and when he would go uh, if they were prepared to see him go. I don't think the Iranians have shown any inclination to, uh, to see him go. 
so I think there's a split in a way uh, between Russian and Iranian attitudes. Uh, with the rest of the transition, you know, uh, I think most people realize that there's going to have to be some kind of constitutional declaration. They can't have a transition under an authoritarian constitution. Uh, there's going to have to be um, a detailed negotiation of that constitution. That's going to take a long time. And there will eventually have to be elections. I think everybody's agreed that they shouldn't rush into elections, but that raises the question of what the, they do about the parliament, because the parliament is just a bunch of flunkies at the moment. So they have to somehow create a parliament that's probably selected rather than elected uh, or some kind of legislative body that represents the opposition, the Alawites, the Shia, the Turkmen, all the groups in uh, in Syria, this was done during uh, the transition in Afghanistan. It was done through a mechanism they call the Loya Jirga. Uh, Loya Jirgas don't exist, so far as I know, in in in, in Syrian uh, tradition, uh, not at the national level anyway. But you know, the the UN and the others will figure out how to do this if we ever get it to a negotiating table. But it's going to be very difficult to get to a negotiating table because usually you try to have a ceasefire before the negotiations. But this ceasefire is highly problematic because it won't include some of the, the strongest uh, military groups, the, the Islam, the very, the, what are called the Salafist jihadis, the terrorist Islamists won't be included. So they're going to continue fighting. How do you monitor a ceasefire? fire, whether several parties on the ground who are continuing to fight, uh, how will you ever know who broke the ceasefire? Um, who would go to observe in, in under Syrian conditions today? It's highly problematic. So I think we're going to be in for a period of, of fight and talk. Um, we've done that in the past. Uh, the Vietnam War continued while we were uh, talking in Paris about a peace settlement. Um, it's not a very pretty picture, but it's uh, probably the best we can do at the moment. And that brings me to sort of my final question, which is what we can do. Uh, now, you've you've been blogging on uh, the website peacefair.net. We will link to that on our, our website because everyone should be reading this. It's really good. Um, but you, you'd blog there. Uh, one of your posts was, yes, Mr. Obama, there is a Syrian opposition. And you were talking about the political opposition in, in Gaziantep. Uh, and you, you had said that basically they are building a, a governmental structure for the areas that have been liberated and, and kind of laying the groundwork for what the future of Syria's government will look like. So here's, here's my fear. I mean, so you say that they need, uh, I believe you said $300 million annually to fund their annual affairs. And for, for Western backers, that's, that's not a lot of money to give to, to, to help see a good outcome in Syria. But here's my, here's my fear when we're trying to fund the the moderate political opposition, how do we make them not the the Syrian equivalent of the Somali transitional federal government? And for those of our listeners who don't know, the the transitional federal government is is a an internationally recognized but basically 
fails to control basically any territory in Somalia except for a few blocks of Mogadishu is entirely dependent on uh, an African Union UN-backed force called AMISOM and uh, is also staggeringly corrupt. And uh, how do we basically fund these guys without make without un- undermining their legitimacy or basically corrupting them through the fact that they have unlimited because once we start funding them then our imprimatur is on them and it's really hard to cut off funding for them because that would look bad uh so we we kind of get caught in this cycle and then they're taking money and hopefully they're they're doing it for using it for the right things how do we avoid this sort of tfg trap if we're going to be constructive in in syria Uh, especially given that that Major actors, Iran in particular, Hezbollah, uh, the existing regime, Russia, don't really acknowledge these guys. First of all, you have to recognize that we're already funding them. And uh, I don't know the total amount of money they're getting. They get money quite erratically. And the U.S. government has a tendency to put its money into the liberated areas in Syria, not through the Syrian interim government, but directly through NGOs. And Though that that may give them more confidence that the money isn't being stolen, and unfortunately also uh, fragments uh, the opposition more than is healthy. Uh, the assistance coordination unit that the Syrians have established and run for several years, spending, uh, I'm not sure what it is this year, but I think last year is on the order of $200 million and was... was uh, audited by an international auditing firm, and uh, get, which gave it a clean bill of health. Uh, so you're not hearing about this in the American press very much because, of course, a clean bill of health from an auditing firm isn't something you write a headline about. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that these people are, are doing this work already. What they need is uh, a bit more money, $300 million, uh, is just to give you an idea, we're spending well over a billion dollars a year on just humanitarian relief in Syria uh, these days. Uh, so, you know, uh, to tell people that they need $300 million for the for their local governance efforts, which is basically what it was, if I remember correctly, is not telling them you know, that they need a hell of a lot more money. Yeah, it's actually quite a small amount of money. Um, I, you know, they already control some territory. So, I mean, um, you know, they're not going to be holed up in Damascus the way the uh, interim government in Somalia is holed up in Mogadishu. Quite to the contrary, um, their whole stake is in controlling Aleppo and Idlib and other uh, towns in the north. Um, you know, will there be corruption? Yes, corruption is the almost inevitable outcome of all all wars. People, I always know when a little progress is being made in a war zone because people start complaining about corruption. They don't complain about corruption when there's mass murder occurring, as there is now uh, in Syria. Uh, but uh, once the mass murder stops, uh, people do complain about corruption, and we should do everything we possibly can to prevent it. But when people can tell me honestly they've been audited by an international firm that gave them a clean bill of health after having spent $200 million, that means they have receipts for $200 million. That's no mean feat in a uh, 
in a war zone. This this is literally the first I've heard of that. That should have been headline news because to be honest, it's like you say, when when you have a war zone and there's and they're actually not corrupt and and that the money's actually being spent the way it's supposed to, uh, that's an astonishing victory. That's actually that's actually more news than than if there was corruption. Right, but but that's not the way the world works. So we don't get headlines for that, but. And, and should we be vigilant? Absolutely, because the natural end of many wars is in organized crime and corruption, drug dealing, mass murder, as it fades, leaves other really bad things to take over. Uh, and I think we have to be very careful about that. But we have to also acknowledge the very courageous people who have stood up to be counted and who are spending this money well, you know, who are giving end-of-year school exams in liberated areas, and and also, by the way, in refugee camps. Um, It's an amazing thing to be able to do. Uh, There are over 420 local administrative councils inside uh, Syria essentially operating as well as they can as, as... uh, local governing structures, but responsible very largely for humanitarian relief, for water, for electricity, for providing essential services. I mean, the Syrians uh, may be fractious, and they are fractious, but they are also courageous. And uh, in particular, the you'll remember that this revolution started with a period of six months to a year that was dominated by nonviolent rebellion. All those people who were involved in nonviolent rebellion, a lot of them, are still around. And not all of them are happy that the rebellion turned violent. And what they've turned to is these local administrative councils and humanitarian relief and providing some kind of uh, judicial structures and that kind of thing in, in the liberated areas. These are, these are courageous people who deserve our support. And unfortunately, because the president doesn't want to intervene in Syria, he denigrates their efforts, and and uh, that's unfortunate. Professor Zerwer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this and help uh, illuminate what's going on in the political opposition in Syria today. Uh, I, I want to also uh, give you a chance to pl- plug your blog on, on peacefair.net, which is uh, which everyone should listen to. Uh, where, where can they find you uh, on the internet? Well, they can they can uh, not listen to me, but read me because I'm not doing podcasts usually. I sometimes put up video at www.peacefair p e a c e f a r e dot net, and it's a blog devoted to uh, to making peace and to the people who who do it. It focuses mainly on the Balkans and Middle East. The Balkans, because that's a place where we've had some relative success, the Middle East, because that's a place where we're failing. Uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Professor. Uh, you can find the podcast online uh, at joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. And you can subscribe for free on iTunes by searching for Ambassadors at Large. We'll be back very soon with another episode. In the meantime, thank you for listening. So long.